Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. We're quickly approaching the end of the trial. So far, you've heard Aki's closing for the state and Dolan's closing for Christian's defense. Today, you're going to hear Robert's attorney Jeff Moore's closing argument. Moore has a very different style from Dolan's. And after a short break, we're going to get right into it. This is Season 12, Episode 59, Moore's Closing. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. Jeff Moore takes an interesting approach in the beginning of his closing argument. He takes some of the known evidence and he fills in some blanks and tells the jury a story. And I have to say that I'm not a fan of this strategy. He doesn't continue it throughout his closing, but it takes up about the first third. The best way for me to present this portion of his closing to you is to just read his exact words so you can hear exactly what the jury heard. One thing I will point out before I begin is that he talks about Robert and Becky having some phone contact on Monday, September 11th. He says that Becky called Robert from her home phone. I need to point out that we do not have any record of this call occurring. Robert's phone records were only pulled from the 15th on, which in and of itself is incredibly frustrating. By 2007, when his sector data was pulled, Robert was the prime suspect in a triple homicide and LeClaire thought that only getting his phone records from the two days prior to the murders was plenty. 
And of course, the same agency that paid nearly $20,000 for DNA testing that could have been done for free by the DOJ only pulled the Friedley's home phone records for 48 hours because it cost about $150 a day of records and they didn't want to spend a couple hundred more for the week leading up to the murders. With all that being said, here's more telling his story to the jurors. Quote, We've been spending a lot of time back in 2006. And the story starts actually a little bit before where the case begins. And I'm going to present a hypothetical to you. And at the end of it, at the end of the presentation, I'm going to explain to you why all this has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So let's go back to the tragic murder on September 17, 2006. Let's go back about a week, maybe Monday before that Sunday, so the 11th. Becky gets home from work. John and Vicky have been working in the yard. They have a project going on. They're doing some replanting, moving some plants in from the desert in around the house. Kind of spruce up the place, a little more privacy. And they ask for her help. Mind coming out, maybe helping us move this tree that's back here? Bring it in, we'll get it planted over the course of the week? She says sure. She's going to be working, so she goes upstairs. It's the cool of the evening, maybe a little bit before it gets dark, and she puts on a sweatshirt. She hasn't worn it for a while. Maybe since, say, January, about the same time she broke up with Robert. She goes out in the desert. She and John and Vicky go out into the desert about, just say, about 200 yards or so out behind the house. And there's a tree there, and they dig it up, and they put it in a new wheelbarrow that John has just gotten for this project, and they bring it back in. Over the course of the week, John and Vicky, maybe Becky, plant that tree and some others back in the back, back behind the house. While she's out there and she's got a long sleeve shirt on, maybe a sweatshirt or a jacket she hasn't worn, like I said, some trash in it from last time she saw Robert. Business card falls out. Maybe she saw it, maybe she didn't, and it's left there in the desert behind, sitting there in the sun, the wind, the dew. No one really notices. No one really cares. They fill in the hole where that tree was, keep people from falling into it and leave it behind. Don't think about it again. Maybe she thinks about Robert a little bit. She's got that jacket on, the sweatshirt. She calls him from the house after they're done that night. He doesn't answer, but she leaves a message. About Thursday morning, early, Robert returns the call, calls her cell phone. He knows she'll either be at work and awake, because she works nights, or she'll be at home and it won't bother her because it's going to go to voicemail anyway, because she doesn't get coverage out there, and it goes to voicemail. But she calls him back and they end up talking. She's at Javier's house, and things haven't been going great with her and her current boyfriend. She kind of probes him a little bit. Hey, you want to come up, maybe get together, go for a walk, hang out? You haven't been to the house for quite a while. Things are going well with him and Sarah, so he's a little reluctant. But this is an old friend. He still tries to maintain a relationship with her when things are okay. He hasn't talked to her for a while. Kind of puts her off a little bit. I don't know. I don't think your parents like me that much. Maybe I shouldn't. They talk a little bit over the course of the next few days. A text here and there, a phone call, nothing big. She's still trying to get him to come up. He's trying to put her off a little bit. Hey, maybe I can come out, but, you know, I I should bring Christian. It will just be the three of us. Thinks she gets the message a little bit. She says, well, you know, maybe I'll have a friend there too. Maybe somebody else. It can be kind of a group thing. No big deal. She actually goes, takes the steps of stopping by. She doesn't stop by Robert's house on Saturday. She stops by Christian's. 
Christian's dad's house, whatever, his mom's. Never keep them straight. There's no chance of Sarah being there, so it's just him, Christian, and her. And they talk for a few minutes. And she's still kind of pushing. Why don't you come up? Let's go hiking. Okay, well, we'll talk about it. There's no commitment, kind of open. Maybe he leaves it, leaves her with the idea that it's a good idea and they will do it after work tomorrow. It's almost the end of the season. They're just about done with work. They got some time. So the next day, kind of a weird day at work, they end up getting suspended. There's only a week left, but they end up getting suspended and ultimately fired because they can't go back to work. And they come home and they're talking. Robert and Christian are talking about what they're going to do that day. They are not going to go hiking. That's not the plan. Then she calls back. Then she calls at, what, about 6.14 p.m.? Hey, Robert, you and Christian still coming up? He tells her, no. You know, it's just, it doesn't seem like a good idea. We got other things to do. I don't know. She gets emotional. She's not crying. She's not histrionic, but she's emotional. Come on, Robert, why don't you just come up? And Robert, he's 18. It's his ex-girlfriend. She's a little bit emotional. He puts her off for a little bit. Maybe he just says, hey, well, Christian and I, I'll talk to Christian, see what he has to say. If he's okay with it, we'll head up, but leave it at that. He calls Christian, and they don't go. They decide to go paintballing and play video games. But Robert's got to go to church first because his mom's nagging him, as she does. So Christian decides to come up and pick up Robert. They're going to go to church and then go back to Christian's house and then go paintball. Absolutely no plan at this point to go hiking. And she starts blowing up their phones. So are you coming? When are you coming up? Why aren't you here yet? Call after call. And they don't take it because they're not coming. And Robert doesn't want to deal with it, and Christian doesn't want to deal with it. Christian finally gets a little bit tired of it. Calls her just to say, hey, listen, this isn't going to happen. But she doesn't answer. He doesn't leave a message. She calls him right back, but he's like, you know what? You had your chance. I'm done. And they turn off their phones. They drive over towards the church. As they're driving, they find out church has already passed. And they call Sam. Hey, what's up, dude? What are you up to? We're just out driving around. We're out in the valley. Sam isn't able to do anything that night, so they end up turning around somewhere around Palm Desert, going back up to Christian's house. Hangout, video games, James Workman School. What they don't know is that there's something else going on at Pinion Pines tonight. There's two guys that are heading over to Vicky and John's house, and they are not going over there for Becky. They are going over there for Vicky or John. They want something, and they are not going to stop until they get it. They pull up their truck around back, not in the driveway, but around back. They walk in. One guy goes in the garage and he's got a pistol. Another guy goes in the door that faces the back towards the mountains that they always use. Both of those are usually unlocked and they were tonight. They come in those doors and there are Vicky and John downstairs just going about their evening. It's about 7.45 coming up on 8 o'clock maybe. It's dark. These guys go in. One of them grabs Vicky and puts a gun to her head. It's the pistol. Another one holds John at gunpoint. There's a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of commotion. Becky's upstairs. She went back upstairs to put on different clothes to go to work instead of going hiking. She's away from the phone. She can't call 911. These guys don't know she's there. She's hiding upstairs, terrified. A little bit later, after the men get what they want or don't, one of them puts a bullet right into Vicky's head. She's dead. John jumps up. He gets shot in the arm. He's not dead yet. He's not down. The man with the shotgun holds the gun on him and shoots him right in the chest, close range. So now these guys have two dead bodies in a house that they need to take care of. 
They still don't know that Becky's upstairs. So they grab some gasoline out of the garage and they start spreading it. They trail some gasoline up the stairs from the garage into the house. Trail some around the bottom of the house. They never even go upstairs. They don't know anyone's up there. With the response time in Pinion Pines, what's the point? Maybe there's not even enough gas. We don't know. So they back out, go out the front door. One guy goes out to the garage, takes his green lighter, lights the trail of gas up the garage steps. Whoosh. The gas goes up. Becky's now trapped. She can't get downstairs to call 911. She knows the plan as well as Jessica or Drew did. Something goes wrong. You go out the window. Go out the back to the hills. She jumps out the window, loses her shoe in the process. She's able to get a little bit back behind the house, but not very far, just back where they were planting the new trees. And the guy that had gone out the door grabs her and takes her down. Now they still have their guns, but they're outside now. They can't shoot her because there's neighbors around, witnesses. The fire's cooking at this point. The bottom floor is fully involved. Neighbors are going to see soon. Firemen are going to be there soon. They don't know what to do. They smother her, break her neck. One of them says, Let's put her in the wheelbarrow. I'll get her in the garage. It'll burn down. She'll be gone just like the other two. You go get the car and get it out of here. I'll hook up with you later. But get the car out of here. Man jumps in his truck and drives out of Pinion, leaving his buddy behind. The man left behind realizes he can't get the wheelbarrow in the garage because the door is blocked by the cars. He takes the lighter fluid that's on the table, douses her with lighter fluid, and uses the matches from the table, lights her, and leaves just as Summerlee, Mr. Summerlee, is coming up the driveway. He can't go out the driveway, so he hides behind one of the cars as Mr. Summerlee is calling. Is anybody in here? Anybody need help? Mr. Summerlee looks over and sees Becky in the early stages of burning. He realizes that there's a major problem, and he leaves. The man, for whatever reason, closes the garage door, goes out the back. He just walks off into the wilderness, and he's never seen again. The next morning, Javier Garcia starts getting information about this fire, whether it's from Claire or his mom or his dad. He gets information about the fire. He calls Robert because he had heard that Becky wanted to go hiking with Robert, but there had been this kind of tentative plan. Robert says, yeah, I canceled. I didn't go. What's up? He says, there's been a fire. I'm going to go up and find out what's going on. I can't get a hold of Becky. And he goes up. And whether he gets there at 8.30, like is in the police report, or 12.30, like Detective LeClaire testified to, he gets up there and sees the men working at the scene. He hears Summerlee talking about what he had seen. He hears the firemen talking about what they had seen. He hears the press officers talking about what they had heard and what they know. He sees one or two bodies being taken out in bags. He leaves after he talks to Detective LeClaire, and he calls Robert and says, It's bad. They're all dead. There's a girl burning in a wheelbarrow, two bodies in the house, saw them taken out in body bags myself. And oh, by the way, I told the police you were supposed to be up there hiking, and I also told them you canceled. You should call them. End quote. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to talk for a minute about the green lighter that Moore mentioned in his narrative. I was made aware of the lighter from listener Valeria, who noticed it on an evidence inventory list. I mentioned it briefly on the follow-up this week and have since looked into it a little bit more. If you didn't have enough reason to be mad at this investigation, here's a couple more for you. On the Friedley property, sounds like near the end of the driveway, the note says on the northwest corner of the driveway and Alpine Drive, a green lighter was found. So far, I've been able to find one picture of this lighter and it looks like it was taken on a table or a piece of paper, not on the ground where it was found. The lighter, as far as I can find, was never dusted for fingerprints or swabbed for DNA. So here's the story. On September 25th, Ben Ramirez filed a search warrant to return to the crime scene for another search for evidence. On the 26th, Sergeant Ford, Detective Eichelt, and Investigator Michaels and Ramirez all went back up to the scene. In that search, they found the following. Quote, Hair recovered from the processed materials on the north side of the residence. End quote and a green lighter was found down by the end of the driveway, but not on the driveway. There were other items collected, but nothing of real relevance, some shell casings, bone fragments, burned-up rifle barrels, a burned-up pistol, etc., stuff we already all knew about. When Ramirez writes that the hair was found in the processed materials north of the house, I believe he's referring to the pile of stuff that was found after sifting through the rubble of the house. So let's talk about these couple items. First, the hair, and this is a big one. I really wish we knew more about the hair that was found, and this is why. John and Vicky's bodies were so badly burned that there is zero chance that any of their hair was left to be found. Their heads were burned down to the skulls. The skin was burned off in most spots. So it couldn't be theirs. So whose hair was this? And where was it discovered? Was it in the house? Was it near the house? Was it by the back door? This is a big deal. No DNA testing was done on the hair. Now consider this. In my arson investigation of the house, I determined that at least John was upstairs when the fire started. That's why he was burned so badly. The fire came up from underneath him. I believe he was on Becky's mattress during the fire, and I explained all that in that episode. I think Vicky was probably upstairs as well, but I don't have enough data to know that for sure. Either way, both of their bodies were burned to the point of having limbs missing and burned away. But my belief is that Becky surprised the killers after the fire was first ignited. I think she was hiding somewhere in the house, probably upstairs, as Moore hypothesized in his closing. She was able to exit the house alive. There was a struggle at some point because she lost a shoe. So what would it mean to you if it was a clump of her hair found somewhere near the back door, either inside or just outside? 
Remember, the rubble from the fire extended outside and beyond the walls. The rubble is included in the material that was being sifted through. So what would it mean to you if that was a clump of Becky's hair? Or what if it wasn't? I'll tell you what it would mean to me. It would mean that the area of a violent struggle wasn't out in the desert at all. It was right outside the back door. Think hard about how a clump of hair could have survived that fire from anyone other than Becky or the killers. It's just as likely that Becky pulled out a clump of hair from her attacker during a struggle as it is that the attacker pulled out her hair. I wholeheartedly believe that Becky's body was ignited within five minutes of Tim Summerlee discovering her, which would mean that she was discovered by the killers and attacked just a minute or two before that. I can think of zero scenarios where that hair came from either John or Vicky. In fact, after now having gone through and finding the one picture that Ramirez took of the hair, which is now up on our website, Becky and John can both be ruled out as the contributors immediately. The hair is black and it's pretty long. Looks like probably at least six inches of hair. John's hair was basically gray and he kept it cut very short. And as you know, Becky's hair was long and blonde. So as far as victims go, that leaves only Vicky as a possibility. But as I mentioned, Vicky's head was burned so badly that there was basically no skin left, let alone any hair. And this clump of hair is singed a little, but it certainly didn't sustain heavy fire damage. And look, I know this episode's supposed to be about Moore's closing, but I got sucked into this rabbit trail and I'm boiling with rage right now. Any way you look at it, the most logical possibility for the source of this hair is the fucking killer. Where else would a clump of six inch long black hair come from near the back of the house that's not burned up? Where? Who? None of the victims had black hair. This piece of evidence was ignored and never tested for DNA, and they spent tens of thousands of dollars on a business card found 200 yards away. And wait, there's more. In that same search, as I mentioned, they also found this lighter that looks new, with fluid still in it, found in a weird spot on the crime scene of a fucking arson. I mean, for crying out loud, this is like the make-believe scenarios I used to teach rookie firefighters to look out for at fire scenes. Always keep your eyes peeled for evidence. You never know when the killer might leave their lighter behind. And here, it may have actually happened. None of the spectators were allowed on the property. They were kept on the road and not allowed up near the driveway where they would have a view of the crime scene. And yet here we have this lighter. And I swear to all that is holy of anyone who is insisting that the business card found 200 yards away out in the desert is some kind of smoking gun. If any of those people try to tell me that this lighter isn't important because it's too far away from the crime scene, I'm going to lose my mind. Do we know that it was dropped by the murderers? No, we don't know. But do you know why we don't know? because they never tested it. Imagine a scenario where you find the same DNA profile on Becky's socks, the hair in the rubble, and the lighter. Now, I'm not saying that that's what you absolutely would find, but what I'm saying is that this case could have been that fucking simple. You have three items of evidence with direct connection to the crime. DNA found on the victim's body of unknown males. 
All we know is who it doesn't belong to, and the state left it at that. Then we also have this tangled clump of black hair found in or directly next to the crime scene, between the crime scene of the house and where Becky's body was found. Hair that couldn't belong to any of the victims, and no DNA testing was done. And on the scene of a triple homicide and arson, we find a lighter and never even dusted for fingerprints. What in the actual fuck is going on? There's a chance that this case didn't need to be complicated at all. Just test the fucking evidence. Remove LeClaire's abortion of an investigation and insert one that's rooted in simple common sense and see where you get. You have two suspects who told you exactly what they were doing that night. Cool, so we'll spend a day checking out what they told us. LeClaire didn't, but that's what a normal investigator would do. And oh, what's that you say? You found a lighter and a clump of hair that doesn't seem to have come from the victims? Eureka! Test those items for DNA. Stat. That's not what LeClaire did. And oh, there's more? You found DNA profiles on the victim's socks? Fantastic. Let's compare that to the DNA if we find any on the hair and lighter and see if we get any matches. And for good measure, let's run the profiles through CODIS. Whoever did this is dangerous and we need to make it our number one priority to find them and bring them to justice. That's what a normal common sense investigation would have looked like. Now, if that's how this investigation was handled, the real killers could be celebrating their 15-year anniversary of going to prison right about now. Instead, what Becky, John, and Vicky got was a half-assed, incompetent investigation that was suspended after LeClaire wasn't able to find anything incriminating on the two guys he decided must be responsible. And I can't express how horrible I feel for the families of the victims. For Tiffany and Drew and Tanya and Ron and Robbie Hayward and all of the rest of the people who loved John, Vicky, and Becky. To be honest, a part of me hopes that they're listening to this so they realize that they haven't received any kind of justice. But the other half of me prays that they aren't listening and they don't know anything about this. I just can't imagine in my mind their hearts being broken all over again by finding out that their loss was so insignificant to the investigators that they put their trust in. This case very likely could have been solved in months, if not weeks, and the right people would be rotting in prison for the lives that they took. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Since I spent an unexpected full segment on the newly discovered to us evidence, 
I'm going to try and breeze through the rest of the closing arguments and just hit the main points for you. The full transcript as well as pictures and reports from everything I just talked about are all posted up on the website. So after laying out his hypothetical scenario, Moore spends quite a bit of time reminding the jury of their duty, as well as making clear the state's obligation and burden. Quote, They have to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt that is tested against the presumption of innocence. If that presumption goes away at any point in time, any proof at all, anything that the DA presents is now enough to prove the case. It's the test. It's the weight that they must pile on against. It never goes away. If you find any reasonable doubt, that presumption pulls the balance back in favor of the defendant. End quote. Much like Dolan, Moore spends some time explaining to the jury how to interpret direct and circumstantial evidence, always circling back to the presumption of innocence and the state's burden to disprove that presumption beyond a reasonable doubt. Quote, Anything reasonable that can be inferred or concluded based on the evidence that has been presented, all of those must be analyzed. And when there are two or more reasonable conclusions that can be drawn from the evidence that's been presented from the circumstantial evidence that's been presented, you must accept the one. It says, and he's talking about the jury instructions, quote, the one that makes an assumption, any of the inferences, any of the conclusions that point to innocence, end quote. Moore then spends some time explaining to the jurors how to evaluate witness credibility He talks about inconsistent statements. Really, I think he goes on too long on the topic, and it gets a little confusing. Basically, he says that if you heard a previous statement that contrasts what someone said on the stand, you can either accept the first statement, accept the testimony, or just determine that that person is in general a liar, and you can't trust anything they say. Moore touches on motive pretty briefly. Quote, And in this case, you heard Mr. Ackie talk about selfishness as a motive. Frankly, I found that unpersuasive, but I'll leave that to you. End quote. He goes on from there to re-explain to the jury how they can use motive or a lack thereof in their decision. He then moves on to present Jeremy Witt as the linchpin of the state's case, and he does a pretty good job of breaking this down. Moore says that the state presented circumstantial evidence that suggests that Robert and Christian might have committed these murders, that they could have committed these murders, but he says that it was Jeremy Witt's testimony about Christian confessing to him that made this a, quote, prosecutable case. Now, as a layman, I think this is a great strategy. I think Moore's banking on the fact that no one actually believed Witt's bullshit, including the jury. But instead of just pushing back against Witt, Moore first uses the state's own witness against them. Quote, Make no mistake. He is crucial to the prosecution's case here, end quote. After hammering away about how important Witt is to the state's case, and in fact saying that the case isn't even prosecutable without him, then Moore explains all the reasons why Jeremy Witt shouldn't be believed. And I don't think I need to spend any more time breaking that part down for you. I don't think even the guilty crowd here believes Witt's nonsense. If you want to read it, there are several pages of the transcript where Moore continues to both hack away at his credibility and continue to frame him up as the most critical element of the state's case. Moore continues on to attack the pathetic excuse for an investigation. He characterizes it as incomplete and incompetent. And then he says that the state's entire case is all smoke and mirrors. 
cherry-picked info meant to hide the full truth from the jurors. He cites the fact that LeClaire never mentions in his report on the case that Becky's sister Drew confirmed in an interview three days after the murders that Becky had been dating a Marine from 29 Palms. She even gave his first name. And yet LeClaire claimed that that info was never passed on to him. And Robert mentioning that Becky had been dating a Marine or Marines was presented as a lie. Another example he cites is the fact that Drew told investigators that she and Becky had a plan in place in the event that anything bad ever happened in the house, where they would escape out the window and run out to the desert behind the house. That was also never mentioned in the investigative reports. Moore goes on to make a good point about LeClaire. He points out that LeClaire was originally assigned to investigate the wheelbarrow track. That was his initial function. Moore even points out that LeClaire became so obsessed with the wheelbarrow track on his notes that he labeled the end of the track as, quote, end of the rainbow. Moore connects his early assignment and focus on the wheelbarrow track as the reason why, throughout the entirety of LeClaire's time as lead investigator, his investigation was built around the angle of the wheelbarrow and Becky being the key to the case. Quote, when he's pulled off and made lead detective, he never loses sight of that wheelbarrow. What he testified to, what he said was, he was assigned the investigative duties based on the suspicious nature of how and where the deceased female was found. That was his focus throughout the entirety of this case. End quote. Moore really does do a good job of breaking down all the mistakes that were made in the investigation. It's worth a read. I'm not going to talk about all of them here because you've heard me say it all many times before, and Dolan said much of the same thing last week. But he does make a point that I think is really important, something I never even considered but I think is worth researching further. He points out that the state never told the jury what type of cell phones Robert and Christian had and were using that night. In fact, there's no mention of their phones ever. I hadn't really considered that, but even more importantly, in the Gladiator drive tests, no phone was used at all. The Gladiator maps show the possible places where certain towers and sectors could connect in 2016, not 2006, which is a huge issue all by itself. But here's the major problem. Those maps show where a car with external antennas were able to make connections to the towers. The test is designed to show the maximum range of the signal of the tower. That is not the same as where the tower is capable of connecting to a handset inside of a car with a one-inch internal antenna. According to Moore here, no attempt was ever made to see where an actual phone could connect to those towers. Think about that. Think about those tiny little spots along Highway 74 where the Gladiator maps show Tower 523 was able to make a couple of momentary connections to fit their theory. Those connections were made to the GAR device, not to a phone. I'm about to wrap things up here, but I want to read you this one exchange so that you can hear what objections usually sound like and how they go during closing arguments. Here's Moore making a statement about when the DA did a background check on Jeremy Witt. Quote, And then we see it again with Mr. Witt. They can't just take what he says in 2011. It's got to get better. He didn't hear Christian confess with his or admit with his own ears in 2011. But in 2016, he does. And they just ignore the fact that he's totally contradicting himself. And they are so excited about him coming in that they don't never even bother to review his criminal history until two weeks ago. 
two weeks ago. And here is where Aki jumps in. Objection. Misstates. And then here's the judge. Well, I'm not sure that there's evidence on that. So, ladies and gentlemen, you can speculate when it comes from the facts of this case. You obviously have to determine what the facts are. As I mentioned at the outset, lawyers are allowed to make reasonable inferences from the evidence. But again, as to whether or not a specific fact is there or not, you have to determine that. If there's a question in your mind, then obviously you can get read back from the court reporter. So I don't specifically recall that evidence coming out, but I may be incorrect. So if you wish to re-examine that, you can look in the record and see if that's true. End quote. I just wanted you to hear that so you understand the kind of leeway the attorneys are given during closing arguments. Moore stated something as fact that I think he has no way of even knowing, and it was allowed to stay in. The jury was just told, hey, you guys have all the information. You figure out if it's fact. And he was allowed to go on. For the rest of Moore's closing, he makes many of the same arguments that you heard from Dolan. Good arguments. Accurate arguments. He does a very good job of pointing out every flaw and every missed opportunity in the investigation. And he uses a particular term over and over again. You've already heard me mention it once. But he uses this term when describing the state's case against Robert and Christian. And I think it is the most accurate description of this case in the English language. The state's case against Robert Pape and Christian Smith was nothing but smoke and mirrors. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. 
And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. We'll be right back.